Welcome to the Short Term Show, the show about short term rentals and long term wealth, with real property owners hosting real properties who are crushing it in the vacation and short term rental space. And here's your host, Avery Carl. Hey guys, welcome back to the short term show. Today we have one of the smartest investors that I know, Julie McCoy, who has invested across multiple markets, multiple different strategies. Julie, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Avery. It's great to be here. We're really glad to have you. So can you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself, uh, what you were doing before you became a full-time real estate investor and just kind of how you got into the gig? Yeah, so I started off um, in the film and television production business, and that was my career for a long time. Lived and worked in Los in Los Angeles, um, and that was my primary, you know, my primary love and career goal for a long time. But I did always have an interest in real estate, and as I kind of got to the point in my TV career where I could, right, you know, was doing more than working for minimum wage where I was able to, you know, put aside some money for investing. I knew that I wanted to have my money work for me and it gave me the resources that I felt I needed to move forward with real estate investing. And so that was, that was kind of how I got into investing with, um, with taking a little extra time, that I had on my current job, doing a lot of research and uh, figuring out which niche I wanted to focus on, and uh, and moved into short-term rentals from there. I'm probably getting a little ahead of myself, though. That was more about the transition as opposed to the past. No, that's great info. So you were working a job that was actually a really great job that you loved, but you always just kind of had a background interest in real estate investing, and in your spare time, you've researched it and came across short-term rentals. I know your first rental was in California, which is a very mm -hmm. difficult state to get started in. So tell us what made you decide, well, two questions. What made you decide to land on short-term rentals? And then how mm -hmm. did you choose that market? So it's kind of the same story to answer both those questions. Um, I had been in that phase of looking for which real estate niche was really going to appeal to me. And, you know, everyone talked about long-term rentals and they just weren't exciting enough for me. Like it seemed like it would take too long to scale. And, um, and I couldn't get excited over something that I would buy with the intent of basically never having to do anything to, and having something generic that would make a couple hundred bucks a month. That was not exciting to me. So I'm like, what else is there that can be a little more engaged um, that can generate the cash flow. And so that was kind of what I was looking for. And then um, incidentally, a friend and I were going to take a, a weekend trip out to Sedona. She had to cancel at the last minute, but I still wanted to leave town, just didn't want to go that far by myself. So I was like, you know what, I'll just take the weekend. I'm going to go up to Sequoia National Park. I haven't been there in a while and it was great. So I booked an Airbnb up there and took a long weekend, um, drove up and had a really fantastic weekend and experience with that host. Um, very pretty setting. And while I was, you know, 
relaxing in the hot tub at the, uh, you know, at my Airbnb in this gorgeous mountain setting. I was like, you know, this is, this is great. I wonder if I could do this. How much fun would it be to have a short-term rental? And started looking around one of the towns I had driven through. It was a little town called Three Rivers. It's at the south entrance to Sequoia National Park and about two and a half hours from Los Angeles. Um, and I was thinking how beautiful that town was. I wasn't staying there because all the Airbnbs were too expensive, I felt. And so I went for a more budget-minded place a little further away. But one thing led to another. It was like, well, I wonder how much uh, real estate costs there. And was pleasantly surprised that at the time, at least for California, it seemed quite affordable. So that kind of triggered the journey to discover, is this viable? Started running numbers, um, looked for a real estate agent. I found um, an agent there who owned and managed her own short-term rentals, which was important to me. I wanted somebody who knew that side of the business and could be you know, a resource. Um, and I don't know, probably probably three or maybe four weeks later, had a, my first property under contract and it was great. It was a wonderful way to learn and uh, gave me a real opportunity to kind of get my feet wet with, you know, a long distance, <clears throat> excuse me, a long distance investment, but it was still only a couple of hours from home. So I could go up there on the weekends whenever I wanted. It was a great way to get my feet wet. Awesome. And you, did you buy any others in that market or did you branch out? After I had been in that market for, oh, a few months, I guess, maybe six months, I was like, this is great. I'm making money. I'm enjoying myself. Um, I want to do more of these, but I wanted a less seasonal market that's very heavy on the summer. Um, spring and fall are beautiful, but don't get as much tourism and the winter is pretty dead. And so I was like, okay, I want something hopefully with a lower point of entry on purchase price, but also just going to be more consistent year round. And so I started shopping for other markets, um, <coughs> excuse me. And that was the point at which I met you and Luke, where, um, where Luke was selling me on the Smokies and I had grown up vacationing there. So I was already familiar with the area, um, but hadn't really considered it as, you know, an investment market. So again, I've, you know, I took what he said and kind of checked it out, did my own research to see if it was going to be as good as he said, everything checked out. And um, when I was over in the area next, you and I met, you showed me a few cabins, didn't buy any of those, but uh, that was, you know, that was the beginning of my purchasing in the Smokies. And that was, I think I closed on my first cabin out there, sight unseen. Um, I don't know, maybe it was December of 2017. So it was maybe eight months after my first purchase. And then after that, it's been all Smokies all day long. Awesome. So now you're in two markets. And so now you're, well, pretty experienced at this point. And what constitutes a good deal to you? And whether that's back then or now, because I know you've been in the game for quite a while. So what used to be a deal is, you know, that it's different markets now. So different things constitute a good deal. But uh, what what is a good deal to you? A good deal to me. I mean, it's all about the cash flow. That's the uh, that's the number one goal for me. So, you know, depending on the market conditions, you know, the 
amount of cash flow you're going to get off of a particular property is going to vary, but I'm still looking for something that's going to consistently cash flow. Um, and I also want something that's going to be easy to manage. So that's something where I, I want the setup to be such that guests should have minimal problems. They should have minimal questions um, about the property. It shouldn't be hard to find, you know, the road should be reasonably good. Um, you know, so I look for things like that as well, where I don't necessarily want something that's particularly weird that people might not like. I mean, it, that's a pretty broad brush, but, um, but yeah, ultimately like if it, if it makes sense to me, if it's going to cash flow the way that I want it to, then I'm open to it. Okay. Awesome. So a pretty universally appealing property to renters and something that cash flows well. Uh, can you dive a little deeper into what what does cash flowing well mean to mm -hmm. you in terms of numbers? What are you looking for? Um, I want a minimum of $1,000 a month in cash flow. And then depending on the size of the property and the amount of capital that I'm putting in up front, you know, I may want more, a larger property I'm going to expect more from. Um, but for a smaller one, I, I want it to be pulling in, you know, at least a thousand a month in cash flow most of the time. Now we've got a, in the Smokies, we have a couple of months of downside, you know, of downtime, January, February is a little slower here. Those months, I'm not necessarily expecting the same, but they should still comfortably carry their, their expenses, you know, almost always with you know, some leftover and then the rest of rest of the year. So I should say on average, I want at least a thousand dollars a month for a smaller property. So a smaller property being like a one or two bed. Yeah. Yeah. I've got four, one bedrooms right now and a one, three bedroom and I'm building two, four bedrooms that will have indoor swimming pools right now. So those I have much higher expectations for. Of course, of course. <laughs> I would <hope> so. Yes. Uh, <laughs> So tell us a little bit about that, because a lot of people, especially the way the market is now, where it's really hot, everything is multiple offers across the country. Mm. A lot of people are thinking about building. A lot of people ask about that. So what has been your experience with building so far? Yeah, so there's definitely a lot of pros and a lot of cons. Um, it's very time consuming. So I purchased the land for these properties in October of 2019. It is now March of 2020 and scheduled completion is May of, I mean, sorry, is March of 2021 and scheduled completion is May of 2021. So that's a, you know, 18 month plus process from obtaining the land um, to the finished product. And I mean, these are custom builds, so it's a little, you know, a little more time intensive than something that's that's perhaps a little more out of the box, not literally, but something that the builder's done, you know, a hundred of before. However, um, I mean, part of the process is not just identifying the land, which I got kind of lucky with, but also getting a survey, which surveyors are backed up. It takes months to get a survey back. You can't get a septic approval until you have a survey. And that takes several weeks on its own. And those are just the building blocks that you need before you can even start working on anything. Um, 
we also ran into issues with water supply. We drilled a 950 foot deep well and got a trickle. So we had to be creative about how we resolved that. We happily did get it resolved. Um, but there are, you know, there are things like that and you don't always know what sort of septic approval you're going to get. I wanted to build two, four bedrooms. I was only able to get a three bedroom approval on one of the lots. So again, had to be creative to, you know, to overcome that. And these lots were, these lots are like 1.7 acres. They are not small, but because of the slope of the land that matters. So there are all these things that go into being able to build what you want that I think a lot of people don't really consider and can be real obstacles. And you don't necessarily know until you're pretty deep in the process and already have a significant amount of capital invested if you can do what you want to do. And so there's definitely a risk to it and, um, and a lot more time, I think, and effort and waiting than people might anticipate. So you're telling me that if I go buy a two acre lot right now and I want to build a five bedroom cabin, like that's plenty of room for a five bedroom, one would assume. So you're telling me that it could be months past me actually closing on the property before I find out that I cannot actually build that five bedroom property on my two acres. That could totally happen. It will depend on, you know, that two acres, like, is it, you know, steep mountainside? Is it, you know, rolling hill, that's going to completely determine how much septic capacity you can get on it. You could have a hundred acres. If it's going straight down a mountain, it doesn't matter. It would be very, very difficult to get a large septic system on there. Um, so that's one of the things to be cautious of. And, you know, there are certain parameters that the drain field has to meet in terms of size in terms of slope of the land for it to be utilized for a drain field. And it's usually, you know, it needs to go on the land that's not that steep, which is also where you want to build the house, which is also where you want to put the driveway. So you can look at something and say, oh, well, there's this nice area here that looks like it's going to be fine. Okay. Is that also, you know, then where are you going to put the house? Where are you going to put the driveway? Do you have room for all of those things with the not steep part of the land. So that's, you know, that's one of many things that makes it a more complex process than just being like, oh, well, that's got a pretty view. I like it. Um, let's build this house there. Yeah. And I think a lot of people get, think that it's going to be that easy. Like, oh, here's this acre lot. Perfect. I can build whatever I want. I'll just pick this up real quick and we're off to the races and I'm going to build my beautiful dream cabin. Yeah. I wish it was that easy. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not. And good land is hard to find these days. That's, you know, cabins are not the only thing that have become competitive and prices have gone up on the land quite a bit in the last, you know, in the last six months or a year in particular. So by the time you factor in all these other things, as, <coughs> excuse me, as well, um, the cost of the land, the cost for the you know, this survey, the septic installation, drilling a well, I mean, we've got 30 grand in our well um, at, at my cabins. So those things have to be figured into your cost. It's not just, oh, well, the builder can do this for however many dollars per square foot. Fine, but also factor in all the other costs that you're going to have involved as well. 
you've got to think about the financing. It might be different terms with um, higher down, you know, higher down payment required by the bank in order to finance your builds. So there, there are a lot of different factors. It's a different, uh, different game than, than just going into something that's ready built. You can start making running money right away. Awesome. So we spent a little time talking about one of the big things that affects cabins, which are septic systems in this market. Let's talk about the other thing, which is wells. Mm -hmm. <laughs> are your uh, are your cabins, whether they're your new constructions or some of your existing, do you have any cabins that are on shared wells? I have, let's see. So let's say I've got seven altogether, including the new construction. I think only there's one that's on utility water. And then there's, I think, only one that has its own well. I think all the others are shared. That's definitely something that I see new investors in the Smokies kind of getting a little a little scared by is the shared well situation. And mm -hmm. it's you know, it's a super common thing. I've got several on shared wells. I have several on mm -hmm. private wells. Some, I mean, some people are scared of wells altogether. Can you speak to that a little bit? What's been your well experience other than having to drill yeah. on several times? <laughs> no, well, and well, we've, with that one, uh, the one at my new constructions, that is also a shared well. I am building two cabins side by side and it will share that one well. Um, we were able to get the initial well to produce. What we did is we fracked the well. So they, you know, it's much smaller scale than what you hear about for drilling for oil, but essentially they, you know, created additional fractures in the earth to allow more, more water to come in. And that's what's giving us the production that we need to support those cabins. Otherwise we would have had to drill another one and, you know, and then your costs just, and you have no guarantee that's going to produce any better. So, when you're starting new like that, that's that's some of the risks. Like I said, there are ways ways to <coughs> excuse me ways to overcome it. Um, but for my existing cabins, I have had one that had an issue, um, and it's a shared well with the cabin next door. Both had been um, just second homes for the families who were the previous owners. Um, they were not rentals. They didn't have hot tubs that were getting, you know, the water changed regularly, et cetera. So they both changed hands within a couple of months of each other. And we were each doing rehab on them. Um, the neighbors installed a hot tub. They're filling it up and, uh, and our water ran out. We're like, oh, this is not good. Okay. What do we do? Um, so we called... Um, we called the well company who is very reputable and, you know, does a ton of work around here. Um, our initial plan was just to drill the first well deeper, um, to try and get more flow out of that. However, <coughs> um, however, the cabin had been built after the well had been drilled, which is pretty typical. And they had built the cabin too close to the wellhead. We could not get the drill rig over the existing well shaft. So we had to drill a new well, um, which has yielded great production and totally solved that issue. It sounds really big and scary to say, oh gosh, we had to drill another well. The benefit of that being a shared well is we also shared the cost. It was something we both needed and we split it 50-50. And so what could have been, you know, a, I think that cost is around $8,000 for the well and the pump 
happened. Um, and so we were able to split that instead of just one of us having to take on the entire cost. So I think there's a big benefit in shared wells as long as your production is fine. Just have your neighbor's phone number. If there's a problem, like give a call and it's in everyone's best interest to work those sorts of situations out. Now, so those are a couple of horror stories, but I've got to say on my other cabins, the worst problem that I've had is a breaker got flipped and the well pump wasn't working for a minute. So we flip the breaker back on and poof, we have water again. So overall, I've had very positive experiences with my wells, but I have also experienced some of the, uh, you know, some of the trials and tribulations. They're all overcomable and none is necessar <coughs> necessarily going to uh, make or break the investment. So wells are not a deal breaker in a lot of cases. I know just a lot no. of people are, are a little bit scared of them. Well, I know that it's, it's a new concept for a lot of people. Um, and so I totally understand wanting to educate yourself and make sure that it's a good choice. But at the same time, as the overwhelming majority of properties in this market are both well and septic systems and the overwhelming majority work just fine. There's occasional issues just like anything else, but um, overall it's, it's not something that I, that even enters into the equation for me when I'm considering a property to buy. I agree with that. And switching gears some, so how have you financed the properties that are in your portfolio? I'm sure you've had to do it a few different ways since you have both existing and new constructions. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So most of mine are financed with, um, with conventional loans. And then I did have some, <coughs> excuse me, I have allergies that are causing this cough. I apologize. Um, so yeah, I've, I've got a number that are financed conventionally. And then I have a couple that were cash buys. Um, and then my new builds I'm doing with a, uh, with a private partner who's putting up the cash for the builds. And then once they're done, we are going to finance, we're going to put mortgages on them and cash out, you know, ideally we'll pull out all the capital, but we may have to leave some in. We'll, we'll see how it all, how it all ends up, but, um, that's how we're approaching that. Okay. Awesome. And one thing that you said earlier kind of caught my attention about buying sight unseen. I know mm. since the market's really fast, a lot of buyers are buying sight unseen. Uh, tell us a little bit about that process and how it went for you. Sure. I mean, I've bought, I mean, until I, until I lived in the area, everything I bought out here was sight unseen and it doesn't bother me in the least. It is a little intimidating the first time. Um, but I mean, that turned out great. That's been a, you know, fantastic producer for me, you know, better than I expected. And the others have been the same. Um, I mean, I rely a lot on, on inspections, you know, on my agent's take on it, which was you in that case. Um, and yeah, but I mean, after the first one, I think I ran you around a bit for the first one, but after that, it was kind of like, I, I would see something on realtor.com or whatever that I liked. And I mean, I would text you, I'd be like, Hey, I want this one. And it was basically that fast. And, you know, there were some multiple offer situations that had to be creative with some of them in order to get them. I didn't get all the ones that I wanted. Um, I think my very first one, I did not, uh, 
I did not get. And the one I, my first purchase out here was at least the second try um, at a cabin. But I have now lost my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, buying sight and seeing it, once I understood the market, I mean, especially once the first one was under my belt, but even just having the trip out here and having the experience of knowing generally how these were going to be run, it didn't bother me at all. I kind of had an idea of what I was looking for. And when I saw it, I just, I said, let's go. What do we need to do to, to make this happen? Um, and some of that included some, you know, last minute financing scrambling. Cause I think a couple of them, I wasn't necessarily planning to buy at the time. So right. <laughs> I had to quick, uh, had to quick pull some strings, but was able to make it happen. And they've all been excellent. I've, there's not a single one where I'm just like, Oh, I kind of wish I had bought something else instead. They've been all, all great. Yeah, I don't think I've heard any investor in any asset class say, oh man, I really wish I wouldn't have bought this yeah. without anything. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, even even the one where we had the well go dry, um, you know, that one I kind of did a kind of did a rehab job on it. It's it served as like a temporary residence for me for a little bit, you know, a little bit of a live and flip sort of situation. That wound up being a much bigger pain than I was expecting. It was still a good investment. Um, but I'm not going to do any more 11 flips. That was, <laughs> it's not for me. I gotcha. Well, so switching gears yet another time. Uh, so you have gotten your real estate license and you're now, uh, on board with us at the short-term shop. Uh, you are a very high volume agent. So you see a lot of properties. You see a lot of deals go through the pipeline for a lot of clients. Uh, what are some pitfalls that you see new investors get caught up in when they're investing in short-term rentals? You know, what I see a lot is people want the perfect deal. They want, or they want the home run. They want to make sure that their money is going to the best possible use, which is wise in a sense. Like you certainly want to be thoughtful about your investing and make sure that where you're putting your money is worthwhile place. However, especially in a market as hot as this one, and it's appreciating as fast as this one, there's a lot of missed opportunities caused by analysis paralysis or by saying, well, I like all of these things, but you know, I, here's the one thing I don't like about it. And so I want to keep looking. That's certainly your prerogative to do. Um, however, then you're, you've got opportunity cost, you're you're robbing yourself of the ability to get started um, and start cash flowing right away. The other thing is when you're new in this market, there's a lot of you don't know what you don't know. And you're going to learn so much from your first property, regardless of whether it's a phenomenal producer or it's just an average producer, um, that by taking on a property, learning how to manage it, setting up your systems, interacting with guests, all of these things are going to teach you how to make even better choices the next time. So there's a lot of value in just getting started instead of holding out for the home run or the grand slam, get the base hit, get started. You're going to learn so much and it's going to put you in a, put you in a position to buy a better property the next time than if you had just waited for that same property. Um, because you'll just, you'll have, 
a much greater, <laughs> much greater knowledge and uh, skill set that you can apply right away to the second one. Yeah. So base hits totally count guys. You don't have to, it's not a home run or nothing. Base hits yeah. count as runs also. So uh, <laughs> yeah. you don't base hits, get you runs, not just home runs. So yes, uh, it's really important. It, base hits are good. You don't have to, uh, what's the saying, Julie, um, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I see a lot of that. And I, I really do understand the temptation. I can be a spreadsheet nerd myself and really get down and dirty with the numbers. Um, but when it's causing you to be to say, well, I'm going to sleep on it or, you know, I'm going to see if a better deal comes along, odds are it's not going to happen. And the, you know, and the property that you're sleeping on, someone else isn't, they're buying it. Exactly. And you just said a very important word in real estate investing, and that is spreadsheet. So <laughs> let's talk a little bit about that, about the analysis, because I think I personally see a lot of new investors who get caught up in everything being down to the cent, correct? And, mm. or, you know, down to the cent, it needs to be $100,000 and 50 cents, or I'm not going to buy it. If it's only 100,000, I yeah. can't do it. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, being too specific and needing to be adaptable at the way the market is right now, especially, I mean, even in a slow market, just with short-term rentals in general? Yeah. I mean, everything is so variable. So the thing that's not going to change is your mortgage payment, but uh, your utility levels will change. Your revenue each month is going to change. Your nightly rates are going to change. So there's no... I mean, what all you're doing is tying yourself in knots for no reason if you're going to get too specific about the numbers because it can and will all change. Some of it's within your control and some of it's not. So get, you know, get guidelines so that you can do some basic calculations. But if your target is, you know, I want 15% cash on cash and this one's only 14%, then make, you know, make it be what you want it to be because so much that's within your control as the manager and improvements you can choose to make, um, ways that you can handle it, ways that you price it. You know, there's a lot of things that are within your control to make something perform better as to make conservative. And then once you, once you have it, then you know, go for it, see how much you can squeeze out of it and you will be surprised. I agree hundred percent. So tell me a little bit about, self-management. So you self-manage your properties. What is the difference between a self-managed property and, you know, maybe a property that's on the MLS and it's a five bedroom and it says, Oh, rental history of 50,000. Uh, can I expect to, for, for that to be just what the property will make? Absolutely not. I would be appalled at a five bedroom making 50,000. I would say that's some, some abject mismanagement happening I've seen there. It. I have seen it on the MLS in the Smoky Mountains. That's, that's terrifying. I'd be like, great. All right, give it to me. I will double that. No problem. <laughs> um, more than, but you know, at, at a minimum, double it. And yeah, I mean, there's, there's such a huge difference in management style. When you're, when you're self-managing, you have the ability to be flexible and adaptable and give guests a you know, a more personal experience than they would otherwise. But most importantly, by just 
just by having your property on Airbnb and VRBO, have some good pictures, you know, have some good copy in your listing, be responsive to people. And that's kind of all it takes. And you'd be amazed at how many property managers don't have those things, or they are not listed on Airbnb or VRBO, or if they are, then it's really just a mechanism by which they try to route people into their direct booking sites. And they've got all sorts of add-on fees, the, uh, you know, the service is not as personal, what, you know, whatever reasons their prices may be lower than they should be. <coughs> um, but for whatever reason, it seems that overall, the property managers here locally do not, uh, you know, are not able to pull in the same sort of revenue that a self-manager is. And that's before we even consider the fact that they're taking a, you know, a 30 to 40% cut of the revenue. Um, and I kind of feel like they're two separate things. They generally, and there's a wide variety of property managers here. Some are really good. Some are really bad. And most of them are somewhere in the middle. Um, so, but even, even with that, even the really good ones, often are not bringing in as much as a really good self-manager would. And again, they're taking a you know significant portion of the returns themselves. So once you add that all together, self-management is by far the way to maximize your cash flow. Um, and once you've got some systems in place, you can be responsive, you can be, you know, you can make guests feel like they are getting really personal service, but so much of it is systematized. It's not really occupying much of your day at all. I agree. We self-manage all of ours and um, it's, it is work, but it's fairly easy work. I mean, the most yeah. you're going to have to do is make a few phone calls, you know, trying to find somebody last minute to do something because your normal person couldn't do it or you know mm -hmm. something along those lines. But I think a lot of investors are, people who are thinking of becoming short-term rental investors, but don't ever actually do it. Uh, they stop because they take into consideration those, those numbers of a property, local property management company that in most cases is mismanaging the property. They take those numbers that are listed on the MLS and say, okay, well, here's this beautiful $600,000 property, but it only did 60,000 last year. Well, that doesn't make a lot of sense. So I'm just, maybe this isn't the investment that I thought it was going to be. And they just move on and never do it. But that's really not the case. It's 100%. It's, it's almost never the property's fault. What the, what the numbers were last year, it's, it's because of the manager. So two exact, two owners can own the exact same property and do wildly different numbers solely based on how they manage it. Would you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it, some, some of the properties I am amazed at how little they do when they look like otherwise great properties. And, you know, I, then I see who the manager is and, and then I understand to the extent that I can understand it's, it's a little hard sometimes to wrap my brain around how low some of these numbers are when I know what the potential is. But I think that's one of the benefits of having an agent who's really familiar, not only with the market, but also with short-term rentals in the market so that they can be a source of knowledge as well, as far as what the potential is. Um, because if you don't know otherwise, then all you have is the numbers on the MLS. And how are you supposed to know that it has the potential to do better 
And so that's one of the things that I think is great about the team that you've built is that so many of us own and manage our own properties. And so we've got literal firsthand knowledge of what our own properties are doing, not to mention, you know, each other's and, you know, all of our clients who have self-managed and, you know, having that knowledge base, I think is really tremendous and can make a huge difference in how, you know, how an investor is choosing to purchase. Exactly. The team that you build around you when you're investing out of state, wherever that may be, is of the utmost importance. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, not all agents are created equal, you know, just because you found someone on Zillow doesn't mean that they know anything about real estate investing. It just means they're giving Zillow a thousand bucks a month. So um, it's really important to, to ask the right questions when you're hiring an agent or a property manager, if you want to go that route, or, you know, really any, a lender, anybody mm -hmm. that is going to be on your team, you really do have to just ask the right questions and make sure that you're getting what you need from them. Yes. Yes. Well, and, you know, we didn't touch on this earlier, but I should also mention that when I started buying out here in the Smokies, I was working 80 hours a week in television in Los Angeles, and I was managing three properties over here without a problem. Um, and, you know, occasionally, yeah, there would be something that required more than five minutes of my time. I was all, always able to find the time and make whatever needed to happen, happen. But the overwhelming majority of the time, it's just the, you know, the occasional you know, messaging of guests, answering questions, things like that, that can kind of organically fit into my day. And so it sounds really intimidating, but like you said, it's all about your team on the ground, not just your agent and lender and the people helping you to obtain your property, but also, you know, your cleaner, your handyman, um, the people who are in and on the property all the time and actually doing those things for you. Even though I live in the area now, I'm not at my cabins doing a bunch of stuff all the time. I don't, you know, I don't have time for it. I, <laughs> I let the system operate just the way I did when I was in Los Angeles. Um, if I need something done, I call the right person to do it. It's not on me. It's on me delegating to the right person. Delegating. That is a very, very key word <laughs> in really building any kind of a business, whether it's self-managing short-term rentals or, you know, anything. Mm -hmm. Yes. So uh, we're to the last three questions of the podcast. Uh, okay. What advice, Julie, would you give 20-year-old Julie? Yeah, that's tough. I feel like overall, I've been pleased with the traje trajectory of my life and each phase has had its own adventures and, uh, and, and I don't look back with a, with a ton of regret on much of anything, you know, what advice would I actually give 20 year old Julia be to have more fun at college, lighten up. Really? Yeah, that really, that's no, seriously. I mean, that's one of, that's probably one of my only regrets that I didn't enjoy college more. Um, because I was too caught up in, I think a lot of the, you know, a lot of the way I was raised and like getting into stuff like that. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's something if I could do over probably would. Yeah. You went to a pretty big school. I see that USC flag behind you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right on. <laughs> I won't bring I up did. the 2005 Rose Bowl then. Um, 
Where yeah, I've got, I've got, I've got another uh, hand gesture for that one. <laughs> <laughs> hook them, hook them. Uh, okay, so uh, moving not on that from one. that. <laughs> it was just one, one finger in the other one. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so moving on from that before we get too far down that road. So, uh, kind of along the same lines, though, what advice would you give a new investor who's looking to get started today? Get started. I mean. We already talked about the value of base hits. Um, getting started is definitely the hardest part, but it's also the part that is the most important. So, you know, acknowledge that you don't know what you don't know. It's going to be a learning process and you do not have to know everything up front. You will not, no matter how much you try and just be prepared to, you know, to learn as you go, um, you know, be as, you know, be prepared you don't want to just phone it in, but at the same time, it's better to make the move. You're going to learn so much more by do, working with your own property, setting up your own systems and doing the work as opposed to trying to read about it, trying to talk to other people about it and so on. You can study until the end of time. You're never going to learn the way that you will once you're actually doing it. So I'd say the most important thing is go ahead and get started. Don't be afraid. That's really, really solid advice. And you really do just kind of have to, you, there's no better way to learn than by doing. Like I, I didn't have anybody to teach me on our first few properties and we just did it and learned as we mm -hmm. went. And none of yeah. them were a mistake. I don't, I still have the first long-term and the first short-term that we bought. So uh, it's, it's been really great. Mm -hmm. you, you do just have to kind of pull the trigger and go. Yeah. Yeah, just take the leap. Exactly. So very last question. Uh, what is your favorite book or just a book that has impacted your mindset? I find that's a pretty tough question too. Um, I don't have as much time to read recently as um, as I would like. However, um, I know a lot of I know a lot of people look at Rich Dad, Poor Dad as an inspiration for them. And the thing that really kind of kicked off their investment mindset. Interestingly, it didn't have that effect on me. I remember being given that book probably when I was in high school, I guess. I didn't really get it. And my issue was more, I was looking for a, for like, okay, I understand that you want to buy assets to create cash flow. That makes sense. But how? I wanted like a how, what is an asset? You know, like how do I wrap my brain around this concept and like actually make it applicable to daily life? And so originally Poor Dad didn't really do it for me in that sense. I have a lot more appreciation for it now, but I found a Kiyosaki's follow-up book, Cashflow Quadrant to be a lot more of the, um, you know, the specific, um, you know, a little more of a roadmap, I guess, to, thinking about, you know, the different types of people and how you're, you know, how you operate a business or if you're just an employee, et cetera, his cash flow quadrant, I think really brought those concepts to life in a way that was a lot more applicable to me. Awesome. I love cash flow quadrant. I actually listened to that one. I read mm -hmm. Rich Dad, Poor Dad, but I listened to cash flow quadrant and same uh, great one. <laughs> same. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Well, Julie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, it's very great to have you. Uh, how can our guests get a hold of you if you want to be gotten a hold of? <laughs> oh, well, now um, I can always be reached through the short-term shop. My email is julie at theshorttermshop.com. 
And um, that's probably the best way to reach me. I'm not terribly active on social media or anything like that, but uh, yeah, hit me up uh, to uh, chat about, you know, short-term rental investing. If you're looking for an agent in the Smokies, you know, Avery's got a fantastic team here that I'm glad to be a part of. So. Awesome. Well, thank you so, so much, Julie, for coming. Thank you, Avery, for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the, you know, all the knowledge that you've shared with me over the years, you know, has genuinely, genuinely been life-changing. So I'm uh, glad to pass that on. I'm so happy. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) All right. Well, we will catch you next time. All right. Take care.